Office Pulp. Uh, according to Cody, it's the one-stop podcast for Movies Madness and Moxie. I'm Mike. And I am James. And I call bull hockey to that. I agree, but it's a better tagline than we used to have, and I don't know where Cody stole it from. We're going to find out that that was like the tagline for the TBS network in the <laughs> 90s or something. <laughs> I've always actually have been curious if we should just Google Movies Madness and Moxie, because I feel like he stole it from something. And he's never going to listen to this, so he can't defend himself. Welcome to Box Office Pulp. Really funny. (laughs) America runs on Duncan. (laughs) Welcome to Box Office Pulp. Starbucks. (laughs) Got a fucking problem with that. Is this too real for you? Oh, if only we were branded. (laughs) Anyway, if you couldn't tell from us insulting Cody within 30 seconds of starting this show, we are here to talk about Logan. Now, this is a year which has so many big properties uh, coming out. We've got Guardians, Wonder Woman, a Justice League or some shit. We have Spider-Man Homecoming. But I'm going to be honest, this was the release, I think... I've been the most on the edge of my seat to see because we're obviously very big fans of James Mangold's The Wolverine from a few years ago. One of our favorite superhero movies, but probably still my favorite X-Men movie. And whenever we saw the trailer to Logan, I can only speak for myself, but that was such a, a game changer for me. Just seeing the balls that a director of a superhero movie can have. Yeah. Because that from shot one, we knew, oh my god, this is a Wolverine movie. And not Wolverine by way of Fox, not Wolverine by way of the X-Men, not even really Wolverine necessarily by way of the comics. This is the Wolverine that's in our heads. This is the cultural Wolverine movie. Exactly. So as eagerly as we were all awaiting the movies coming out in 2017, this was the one that we knew was going to be a game changer. That when all the dust was settled, this would be the movie that either rewrote the rules of what you could do in a film like this, or was an ambitious failure. And after seeing this, like, I can honestly say, yeah, it's the former. Logan, I get, Logan, when it, like, the teaser just kind of popped out of nowhere. That original one with, uh, with Hurt. It was such a kick in the teeth, because we had heard nothing. Like, we hadn't even really gotten confirmed X-23 would be in the movie. So, the excitement level went from, man, there's a final Hugh Jackman Wolverine movie being made. I don't know what that is. To, this is, the kind of auteur comic book film I think that's been kind of waiting in the wings, but have never been truly attempted. Things close to it have, as far as adapt- using a superhero character to make kind of an auteur, for lack of a better term, art film. Because Logan's very close to art film and in structure and tone. Oh, yeah. Not in a pretentious way, just in a... You know, it's far more uh, Western or throwback or character piece or uh, it's a tonal landscape of which hasn't been attempted in this particular genre. And someone who, because Mangold's a person who loves the comic book genre, 
and is also a filmmaker auteur. And we saw him kind of, kind of go in that territory with the Wolverine, but the Wolverine was still very much an X-Men atonal film. And Logan is, when I first saw the trailer for it, and it became very clear once I actually watched the movie, this is the vast kind of graphic novel you would see get made, but no one would ever look at as a thing superhero comics can be. Logan feels like an X-Men graphic novel that would have came out in 1987 and blown everyone away. Yeah, exactly. This is, this is very much a, a prestige piece. And you walk away from Logan feeling like, I mean, people have looked at the Marvel films, like the way they've kind of evolved and things like Winter Soldier popping out and going, you know, it's it's cool that the uh, superhero film can be so malleable, which, of course, every comic book fan knows that already. Uh, you know, now it can be a political thriller and stuff like that. As you walk away from Logan going, this is a transformation piece. Like, this is actually just pure cinema that we have actually, we've rarely seen. Like, we used to see this stuff on a large studio scale back in the day. We don't see that kind of thing anymore. And the breath of Logan is something that captures you immediately within the first few seconds. Yeah, let's talk about the opening of this movie. Because I have to say, Wolverine, a drunk, hobo Wolverine, (laughs) that scene, sleeping in his car, Wolverine throwing himself in front of a shotgun blast, saying, no, not the limo, because he can't afford to repair it, and instead, hurting himself, is the saddest thing I've ever seen in a superhero movie, and that's before the opening titles. Yeah. Like, the opening of this movie just grabs you immediately. That is the hook. Like, everything about Logan's character throughout that movie is just established in that first five minutes, including the move, the film's use of violence and how wow. we're finally getting a hard R-rated Wolverine movie full of violence. I mean, we got that with the director's cut of the Wolverine, but not like this. This was, That was cool Wolverine violence. This is horrifying Wolverine this violence. This is the monster. And I'm very curious if you felt the same way, because the second I saw that opening scene, my first thought was, I think this is the first time we've actually truly seen Wolverine's berserker rage in 20 films. Pretty much, It's pretty much just this, and, I mean, Mangold did touch on it a bit in The Wolverine, but it's pretty much just Logan and the Weapon X scene in Apocalypse. Because this is the first time I've ever seen the rage portrayed where, okay, I fully buy that Wolverine is not in control when he's doing this yeah. and probably didn't remember killing any of those guys afterwards and really wishes he didn't. This is blind berserker rage Wolverine. And that is such an essential part of Wolverine in the comics. The shame It's the thing that shames him the most, that no matter how you know cultured and civilized he may become, there's that animal inside him that's eventually going to lose it. And he's going to black out and then wake up and everyone's dead and he's a monster again. And that's how this movie opens. Yeah. And the great thing about establishing that immediately, 
And showing also that Wolverine is... I mean, we've seen him haunted by his violence in past films. That's not really anything new. That's an essential part of the character. But actually seeing the grotesqueness of the violence and seeing that it has consequences and it sees you see the blood actually weigh on him. Th- that plays so much into what ends up being the true villain of the piece later on in the film when X-24 shows up and it's Weapon X Wolverine. It's Wolverine's Berserker Rage condensed into a complete person. It's none of the other things that make Logan Logan. It's just the killing machine. It's everything he fears. I will say, until Mangold says otherwise, I'm going to take it that X-24 is Dakin. Don't ruin X-24, man. (laughs) I just like the idea of Logan ending with Dakin and his mohawk. I will accept this ending because Laura blows Dakin's head off then. Which we've all wanted to see for a very long time. The real daughter of Wolverine (laughs) takes that mantle at last. Um, to jump ahead, like, towards the third act of the film, that gets such a great kind of acknowledgement in the scene where Laura finds him while he's you know, having his Wolverine nightmares. And it's such a familiar scene. Wolverine's tossing and turning because, oh, no, Weapon X, Gene, that Japanese man he pushed off of a mountain. And, you know, Laura says that she has the same dreams where people are hurting her. And he corrects her with, no, I have dreams where I'm hurting people. That kind of blew me away. Yeah. (laughs) Watching it, because there's such a very keen perception of what Wolverine is in popular culture. And this movie very much prides itself on being aware of that and commenting on it. And pretty much just telling the audience, okay, what you think you know about Wolverine might not necessarily be 100% the truth. And that was such a brilliant twist on that iconic Wolverine thing of, like, no, if Wolverine was having nightmares, it wouldn't be of Weapon X. It would be of all the people he's murdered. Yeah. It's part of the deep dichotomy of the character that's, even the comics, I mean, it's, it's explored a lot in the comics, of course, but tends to be... You know, in solo series, yes, and X-Men comics, not so much. Brushed over is just him killing people is kind of cool and awesome, which has its place. And in the movies, it's, in the Wolverine, it's, it's dealt with somewhat, but not, not very deeply. And not in the way it does in Logan, which, Logan is not a deconstruction of Wolverine in any way, but it's a deep examination of why Wolverine is such a captivating figure and has so much to say as a character. He's not just claws and yelling and killing people. Like, the thing that you think is really awesome about Wolverine isn't good for Wolverine as a person. No. And there's something, as a piece of art, I think there's something beautiful in the fact there's a clear disconnect between the cultural audience enjoying a character and the character's reaction to what the cultural audience is enjoying about the character, and that actually being a plot point in the film. Well, it's such a beautiful metaphor where Wolverine is almost falling apart before our eyes, and you just see the scars and just the years of pain and regret are just etched into Jackman's face, and there's something kind of disarming about 
showing the audience, yeah, this is what happens when you're this for this long. It's like, forget Wolverine or the X-Men. That's just such a beautiful statement on action heroes in general. Yeah. It's like, this is what happens when one of those guys has to be one of those guys for a really long time. It destroys them. I love how Mangold is equally obsessed with a tale of immortality. Because immortality is something that fascinates me in literature and film and whatnot. My favorite depictions of it is still, to this day, Shadow of the Vampire. Just because I, I love that it's not portrayed as a cool, fun thing. It's not even really tragic. It's just more there. It's sad. It's it's not something to behold. Orlock's thing is that he just forgets everything about his past or why the hell he's even immortal in the first place. And Mangold keys in on immortality as a key part of Logan's story arc, which you don't really see touched upon in most Wolverine stories until he's like a really old man, which of course he is in this. He's old man Logan, essentially. But he keys on that in the Wolverine. He keys on that here again, but in a way where it's just, it's not just regret that's weighing him down. It's just he can't die and he just wants to because he's done. He's just done being a person at this point. He There's nothing else for him here. The X-Men are over. The superheroes are over. All of the events, all of the adventures are done with. Why the hell is he still here in this limo taking care of this old man? Yeah. Also, not to shit on your uh, beautiful uh, comparison to Shadow of the Vampire, but I'm really taken with the image of James Mangold wandering through Australia (laughs) and finding a cave (laughs) with Hugh Jackman inside. Just with with the with the hair and the mutton chops. Oh, I've been around forever, mate. <laughs> and on that day, <laughs> X Men Origins Wolverine was made. No! <laughs> and then Mangold came back, and he made a different movie. Oh, he found that beautiful nymph in that cave and made him fight the Blob. <laughs> Put on these boxing gloves. We'll figure it out later. Here's Gambit. Logan is a movie. That's taken me a while to unpack since seeing it earlier in the week. And honestly, it's a movie that's haunted me in a great many ways, which I'll talk about a little later. But the thing I keep returning to is the symmetry I feel with the Wolverine, which is a very subtle symmetry. Is the movies don't really play off each other. They might not even even be in the same continuity, but it's such a simple symmetry that's all in the titles of the two films and what they mean to the films they represent. Because The Wolverine is a movie about Logan embracing his own mythology and choosing to become Wolverine, the comic book hero. It's almost a late-in-the-game origin story. And on the flip side, Logan is a movie about the man who used to be Wolverine and isn't much of anything anymore, shedding the weight of his own mythology and becoming Logan, a hero in his own right. is something I felt was very, very deliberate that I picked up on in just the first scenes was that other than Caliban and Xavier, pretty much everyone calls him Wolverine. Strangers call him Wolverine. Donald Pierce calls him Wolvie made me so happy. Like, nobody really calls him Logan, 
because even though he's as far from that life as possible to the outside world, he's Wolverine. He's living in the shadow of this larger-than-life comic book hero that he wants nothing to do with. And by the end of the movie, Logan finds salvation, not by becoming mythic again and becoming the Wolverine, but by overcoming his own mortal frailty and finding heroism and just being a common man. Like, there's a lot you can read into with Wolverine's loss of healing factor. Like, the most practical thing is just Mangold can't really write for a Wolverine that can survive anything. Like, he said that a hundred times. But I think there's also a significance in that. That slowly over the course of the film, by the end of it, renders him pretty much just a normal mortal man. It's like he's in so much pain and is so stapled together by that final fight. He's pretty much just a regular guy with some knives taped to his hands. Pretty much. But you know, with Laura's help, he's able to do one good thing as Logan, not Wolverine. And that is the fucking beauty of that ending to me. This is a movie that is very emotional for a lifelong comic book fan, especially an X-Men fan, especially an X-Men movie fan. But I prided myself in being able to keep it together throughout, except in that final shot, when after Wolverine's died as a man, Laura tilts the cross on his grave to make an X, and the kids begin filing away, and one of the kids is holding a Wolverine doll. Not movie Wolverine, but comic book mythology Wolverine. What looks like a toy this Wolverine doll. And this, the beauty of that reduced me to tears. These children burying a mythological character who in the end was just a man, but that's okay. It's like, that is such a testament to the power that films like these have. I feel and this is an odd comparison because it's hard to imagine more polar opposite movies, but I feel that this is in many ways a sister film to Civil War in that both films are elevated from good to great by their connection to mythology. With Civil War, it's its connection to the mythology of the Marvel films. Civil War isn't really Civil War without the added emotional weight of having followed these characters up until that point. Logan has that, but not specifically for the X-Men films, but for the entire weight of Wolverine as a pop culture icon since the late 70s. Yeah, his entire history. This movie's billed as the grand finale to movie Wolverine, but it feels like the finale to Wolverine. In many ways, it's kind of a love letter to the character. I mean, nothing exemplifies any of that more than this movie has essentially caused people to come out of the Wolverine fan closet. That has made me so happy over the past few months, too. Like, ha-ha, you do like Wolverine. It's like vindication. That Wolverine, I mean, you Jackman as Wolverine specifically, is important to pop culture, is important to movie language of the last many years. Since the year 2000, no one's wanted to accept it, but that's been an icon of cinema. It's really weird to think, because it's such a slow burn revelation, like, wait a second. There hasn't been another big action hero since Wolverine. That we just got John Wick, and that's it. 
And it's caused people to not only kind of accept that, but just accept that Wolverine as a character is something to be okay to like. Like, it's not stupid to like Wolverine. And I don't think it's just because, well, this movie's really dramatic and is a real movie versus things like X-Men Origins Wolverine. Finally, they made a real Wolverine movie. So, no. Yeah. I mean, there are, of course, people who are stupid like that. But, you know, they're few and far in between. It's just that this movie is about Logan purely as a character and what he means to pop culture. Culturally, culturally, Wolverine means something. And Logan is not only a goodbye to Jackman as Wolverine, and that ending is so perfect for that, even though I know Jackman at first was apprehensive about him actually dying, but that actual funeral scene almost works as a rebirth to the character while he's being put to rest, I feel. He's being reborn in the public consciousness to actually be heralded as the character everyone knows he is, but refuses to accept for various reasons. It's essentially given Logan a second chance to be Wolverine. And given him such a retroactive importance. Exactly. And what makes that so important is... Like, even just beyond just being a fan, but just what makes that so important, I feel, to movies is that we've seen films like this, especially, you know, from Clint Eastwood, of examining characters like this and putting them under a microscope and giving those characters kind of a goodbye. But never this literally. Gran Torino isn't about Dirty Harry. It's about Dirty Harry, but it doesn't star Dirty Harry. Unforgiven doesn't star the man with no name. But Logan is fucking about Wolverine. And that is incredible to me. You don't ever get that actually happening. You never actually see the character fulfilled to its end point in that way. It always ends up being symbolic or in some other form somewhere down the line. For comparison, imagine if right now Sean Connery announced that next year, Death of Bond. <laughs> it's like, oh my god. I want to see that now. <laughs> Just 97-year-old <laughs> Sean Connery. Just he goes out to check the paper, falls, credits. I hurt myself today. You see up his kit. Oh, God. Um, Stephen Merchant, what are you doing here? (laughs) Oh, kind of been like balls. Um, Still can't convince me that's not Apocalypse Caliban. I still say we didn't see what Apocalypse did. We just know he did something. So he rewrote his DNA to make him tall and British. Which we all, which would be the perfect version of Caliban. Can I go out in the sun now? No. But uh, let's scale this down just a little bit from the loftier stuff and just talk about the nuts and bolts of this movie. Because I'm so fascinated by the character dynamics, specifically <laughs> in the first act. Oh, yeah. Because Logan and Caliban are married. Essentially, yeah. Caliban directly references that he cooks his meals and does his laundry and isn't happy about it. (laughs) And Logan says he doesn't need this shit and throws his cup and walks away. That is a scene in a superhero movie. Caliban just wants a better life. I felt so sorry for Caliban. And he knows Logan is going to leave him for that boat. 
Logan. He knows Logan's going to go on a yacht in the middle of the ocean and blow his brains out from a bullet he got from X-Men Origins Wolverine. <laughs> He's going to kill himself with the bad movie. <laughs> You think that was intentional? Like, that was what Mangold was going for? No, do not kill yourself with that Deadpool. <laughs> do not walk forever. Also, I love how they acknowledge just how funny the mental image of Caliban on a speedboat is. <laughs> just lurking around in the lower decks like Nosferatu. I feel like this Caliban would enjoy that, though. I just, like, I've been fascinated by this ever since the casting. What about Caliban spoke to James Mangold? I think what about Caliban spoke to Stephen Merchant? (laughs) I get to be tall and pale. (laughs) I get to die historic. I love how Caliban goes out like an action hero. (laughs) While accomplishing nothing. (laughs) That was so sad. He just knocks Donald Pierce out of a a van. He escaped torture. Like, that's weird when you think about it. Caliban just killed himself. Yep. I mean, he, he got to, you know, go out big at least, so that was good. But he, you know, he in his mind, he was doing a lot. But and no. then his pail was harvested. <laughs> All he did was he caused Donald Pierce to have to use a different car. No. That, that was- is about Caliban's level of... <laughs> Of heroism. Ha ha! Inconvenienced by Caliban! Uh, speaking of Donald Pierce, though, I don't know why Donald Pierce is in this movie has randomly become one of my favorite villains. Donald Pierce is the greatest henchman ever. He's so good! And good despite never moving past just being a henchman. Like, he's like a diehard henchman. He really is. And I like how he's set up like the main villain, and then and then Dr. Rice shows up, who also doesn't really do anything, but, you know. Well, I thought that was fascinating. That's something uh, Mangold has gone into in interviews where one of the big goals he went into with this movie was he wanted to subvert the superhero movie thing of there being a big villain. Like, he just wanted there to be a series of henchmen and then a scientist who dies immediately because this movie isn't about that. Uh, the villains are more just roadblocks for what's going on more than anything else. Like, I mean, the closest to a villain, arguably, is X-24, but even that's more of a philosophical villain. That's a that's an analogy villain. It's an allegory. That's not really, you know, a dude in a cape or something. I still feel like X-24 is only in this movie because Mangold just once wanted to shoot Sabretooth versus Wolverine, and this was his only chance. 24 does have the mutton chops like Sabretooth. And the shaved head. He looks very much like Schreiber's Sabretooth, actually. He really does. I wish they would have just photoshopped his face on there and not explained it. <laughs> What I found fascinating about the science behind X-24 is Wolverine is a character you can do all that with. Like, (laughs) oh, yeah, you can just grow his body parts in a lab and then Frankenstein him together and the healing factor will take care of everything else. Because it's Wolverine. Like, you can just grow a Wolverine. Wolverine's kind of a beautifully ridiculous character. Well, he can regenerate from a single skin cell, so... (laughs) Hey, that was only because of aliens. <laughs> or something. And all that happened in this continuity. You can't say it. <laughs> 
But on the subject of Pierce, one of the things I really loved about the craftsmanship of the film is its utilization of future and comic booky things, like how the Reavers are cyborgs, but you don't really focus on that. And the way they're integrated into their flesh is more, not mundane, but they're not aggressively robot. Nothing has really drawn attention to. This is the quietest future I've ever seen in a movie. Uh, you know the self-driving trucks on the highway. The you know, the closest you get are the giant future machines at the farm, and you even see those from afar. Just little tiny things that paint in the universe that we're in, while still just it's just a normal world that happens. It, it actually ends up being probably the most realistic future ever depicted for that reason. Oh yeah, I always prefer depictions of the future that are super low key like that because those are the ones that end up holding up later on. Yeah. Because ultimately, the fabric of civilization does not change that much in 50 years. <sighs> also, I just want to talk about for just this moment. I love this movie having some of the subtlest political commentary I've seen in yes. a superhero movie yes. while also being over the top and cartoony. That was unexpected. Like you just see Wolverine driving past the Great Wall of Mexico <laughs> while white businessmen chant, USA, USA. And the entire plot revolves around Mexicans being treated less than human. Yeah. And also really random deep cut stuff like corn syrup. Because <laughs> it's in everything, Mike. Because, I mean, that is a fucking deep, deep cut. I mean, I, I'm not going to get into this because it's boring <laughs> as shit. But corn syrup is the reason we're all fat. And it's because of greed, essentially. Cheapness. Yes. Corn syrup is borderline genetic engineering as far as making the human race worse goes. So utilizing that secretly throughout the movie as why the mutant population went to shit is both fucking fascinating and using real world stuff to put on, you know, silly mutant things and also terrifying because the government can actually do that. <laughs> That's just realistic. Like the government would use corn syrup. Oh, yeah. That's the secret. It's like fluoride. <laughs> also, I just love the subtle brilliance of removing the mutants from the equation so that when Wolverine has to stick up for an oppressed minority, it's an actual oppressed minority and not mutants. Yeah. And I, I like how it's not really the, – the mutant population thing is addressed as to why, which I, I was happy with because I didn't want it just to be uh, mutants died out eventually. That, which that's I was, what I was expecting. Yeah, that's what I was expecting kind of dreading because I didn't want it to really go in that direction. But I – it would be weird to me if that was raised at the very end of the movie, not solved, and then we never got a follow-up to it. Because <laughs> it feels like the movie's setting up Laura essentially leading a team of new mutants to save mutant kind. Yeah, that, that, that kind of, that's a thing that frustrates me in hindsight, which is I know the plot of the new Mutants movie that we're getting isn't that. Because <laughs> all I could think of during that third act was, oh, what if this was Cannonball and Danny? And like, this was the new Mutants movie, and it's set in the future, and they're the last mutants, and they're led by X-23. How cool <laughs> would that be? That would be cool, but I still like how we can totally get that movie, though. An X-23 movie where she she's part of a young group of mutants and she has to save the world. And Richter's there. 
Well, Daphne Keene certainly has the silent charisma to carry a franchise because, oh my god. Yeah, no, no, no better way to end our Logan talk than just, can we spend 45 minutes talking about Daphne Keene and how awesome X-23 is? I remember your first thoughts after you saw this movie were, Daphne Keene is the greatest child actor I have ever seen. And after watching that movie, my first thoughts were Daphne Keene is the greatest child actor I've ever seen. She does such interesting, subtle things throughout the movie. You can get so much out of watching her performance, just strange little ticks and movements. And I've never seen a child actor be so precise. She's not acting. No, she just became that fucking character. It's weird and surreal. Like, James Mangold's talked about in the past his utter revulsion at child actors because you're just watching child abuse. Like, oh god, someone trained this human being to perform. And what attracted him to Keen was she's not an actor. She just becomes another person, and that's not a performance. Yeah. It's uh, He described her audition tape as her father filming her as she just kind of leaped around their living room and then very savagely would walk around grunting and examining things as if she's seeing normal mundane items for the first time ever and sniffing them and trying to figure out what they are, like a feral child. It's, what 11-year-old even comes to this conclusion? I mean, what a find Mangold discovered. A, like, she was like 10, I think, when they made the movie. A 10-year-old who can do physical action scenes uh, is bilingual. <laughs> can, uh, and it, honestly, is one of the greatest actors I've seen in quite a long time, child or otherwise. Like, that performance is fucking incredible, and it's mostly silent. And just appearance-wise is so striking. Like, I've never seen a child have that much stage presence. Like, oh, just yeah. from just from the teaser, like, that was apparent. But there's a moment halfway through I'm obsessed with where Logan and Laura get out of the limo. Logan hands the keys to the valet, and before they walk away, in the background, Laura eyes the valet threateningly and then walks away confident knowing that she intimidated that man so he won't steal the limo. <laughs> and I think that's just a thing Keen did. I don't think that was in the script. Yeah, I think there's a lot of stuff Kane just did. And it plays so well into... Because, I mean, it's a hell of a thing to hold your own against Hugh Jackman and Patrick Stewart when you're 10. But it plays so well into what Mangold did with X-23, which was have her go back and forth between child and parent. Because since Wolverine never actually parents her throughout the movie... She kind of goes back and forth between being allowed to actually be a child, more so than X-23's ever been allowed to in her origin previously, which I thought was interesting because she's still the same X-23 from her origin, but much more childlike with you know the ball she plays with, with you know, looking at clothes in the window, things like that, or comic books. But then turning around and being the parent to Logan in a situation – Turning around, like, this great part, the great scene, it's in the trailers, it's in the movie, where he falls asleep in the truck, and it's the reverse of her falling asleep in his lap, he falls asleep in hers. And she just looks bored and annoyed. <laughs> and what I love about how that relationship is played in that way is 
interesting thing about Wolverine in the movies is it's he's introduced by essentially being given a father figure. And this movie is about Wolverine and his father figure and then becoming a father figure through his daughter. But Wolverine's always essentially searching for something else. So his daughter also functioning as a parent to him ends up being probably the most Wolverine thing in the world. He needs his 11-year-old daughter to parent him like she's his mother more than anything else. He's not at all capable of doing that, so she has to do it for him. She's his daughter by parenting him. And that's a relationship that could very easily devolve into a bad Kevin Costner movie. (laughs) This movie plays it so low-key that it never feels cliché. I kind of wish there was a scene where uh, Logan dressed up Laura in a Casper costume. <laughs> was that a deep cut? I think it was. Continue. Ooh, bub. And it's fascinating just to watch that dynamic play out with Laura, Logan, and Xavier. And God, can we just give props to Patrick Stewart for giving the least vain performance I've ever seen in an actor of that stature? God damn. Because that takes fucking courage to do. Oh, yeah. When you are Sir Patrick Stewart and you shit dignity. (laughs) (laughs) And you're willing for your last role as your second most iconic (laughs) character to be raving and pissing your pants. And doing that with absolute honesty, too. Yeah. There's such vulnerability in that performance. It's – I was fucking taken aback. Like, there is such – I just could not believe the stuff Stuart was doing. Besides just how that character, how Xavier is written in this movie, the tragedy of him and just the emotional honesty and the psychological honesty of everything going on with that character and Stuart's performance, it's sometimes hard to watch. And that's the dynamic of him between him and Logan and how that eventually ends was so unexpected to me because – but so much of this plot under wraps, like you see the trailer, you go and you're thinking, OK, so it's just retirement Wolverine and Xavier six. So he's taking care of him. It never occurs to you that they're on the run because Xavier went insane and maybe killed the X-Men, which until someone says otherwise, onslaught. <laughs> I, yeah, I guess you can't. I, I guess in a way, Onslaught is just from Xavier convulsing, essentially. <laughs> so. But, uh, like, that was so beautiful, especially in Xavier's death scene, where he comes out of the cloud of drugs and senility long enough to remember what happened and realizes that he and Logan are the same. Yeah. Like, they've had such a father and son mentor and student relationship over the years. But in this last horrible year, they are equals. They're both good men who hurt people, and they have to deal with that and not run away from it. It's like, that's never in a million years would I ever expect a moment like that from an X-Men film, or even an X-Men comic at that. (sighs) And then he's brutally murdered. God, I, I said earlier that there's a lot of things about this movie that have haunted me. And the character arc and eventual death of Charles Xavier is one of them. 
because just by itself, in the context of the X-Men films, how fucking sad is it that Charles Xavier is stabbed by Franken-Wolverine and then left in a swamp? <laughs> and just looking at it in the context of the greater films, it's like, Xavier is a character that's always... Uh, meant a great deal to me and has always been the idea of Xavier is always such a tremendous comfort, especially in the movies where he lacks his more morally ambiguous qualities that he has in the comics. And the one thing that's always been consistent is that idea of Xavier as the ultimate mentor, the ultimate father figure, this lighthouse cutting a path through the darkness of the world. And I was so deeply disturbed and haunted by the idea that in the end, none of that mattered, that Xavier wasn't able to save anyone in the end, that the school didn't matter. The X-Men didn't matter. Him trying to save Logan didn't matter. He just killed the people who meant the most to him and the world moved on and he was left on a stretch of highway and As much as I loved the movie walking out of it, that was something that just bothered me in a way. I didn't think a fake character from some made-up stuff (laughs) could. But it wasn't until I examined the movie in the context I was talking about earlier of Wolverine realizing it's okay to be Logan that really dawned on me the beauty of Xavier's arc which mirrors Wolverine's perfectly because for years he was Professor X. He was the ultimate teacher. He was this larger-than-life comic book hero, much like Wolverine. But in this movie, in the end, what matters is he's a man who cares. You see him trying to be Professor Xavier to Laura, and that little bit of the old professor coming in through the senility and watching him struggle with that and trying to guide her, but only being able to talk to her on the level of a child because he's a child himself now. That's heartbreaking, but that is also so fucking beautiful because in the end, it's okay that he can't be Professor Xavier because in the real world, you don't need to be that. You just need to love people and to care. That's as brutal as that lesson is learned. That is a beautiful fucking lesson and one that's ultimately comforting. Logan can be Logan. Charles can be Charles. You don't have to be a great man. You just have to be a decent one. Yeah. And that's why Logan surpasses pretty much any other superhero film in terms of actually giving the people who watch it uh, something to carry around inside of them afterwards. Because I feel like no other movie has made the case for basic human decency more than this. And to pull that off in a superhero movie with a character we've seen ten other times in a franchise known for metaphor and for things being large and indirect, to just cut that closely to the bone is a miracle to me. And I think that's why whenever the dust clears and we're looking back on the superhero movement in movies, not something that lasted a couple of years, but like as a moment in film history, I think Logan is going to be one of, if not the brightest star there. I think by and large. And it says a lot about the mastery of Mangold 
the mastery of that script, the mastery of that direction, the mastery of the actors, that it can do all that, but it's not a movie that's ashamed of what it is or the characters in it. And proves that this genre is what it is to fans who know it best, that these things are possible and that true human art can be made out of something as silly as the dude who wears yellow spandex. And more importantly than that, can give us X-23. And if she doesn't have her own franchise, (laughs) I will begin taking lives, learning no lesson from Logan about the (laughs) sanctity of human life. I will kill every single person I see until there's an all-new, all-different Wolverine movie in which Daphne (laughs) wears yellow spandex and saves the world. Mike will personally put guns back in the valley <laughs> if this does not come to pass. <laughs> I'd get one silly little quick about how much I love X-23 in there. It's very important. But while we could say, oh, so much more about Logan, I think we're all very emotional right now. And we all have a yacht to get to. Because Wolverine and Professor X died and couldn't buy it. So now it's up for grabs. Come on, James! <laughs> yeah, Sunriser! Oh, and also, follow us on Twitter, at Box Office Pulp. We're also on Facebook, facebook.com slash Box Office Pulp Podcast. Please subscribe and rate us on iTunes and or Stitcher, depending on what your preferred method of podcast listening is. And we are at boxofficepulp.blogspot.com. And be sure to check out our other fine Pulp Podcast Network shows, Graphic Novelism, Supergirl Power Hour, and Pulp Nightmare. I had to pause and think, what's the third one we update the most? I guess Pulp Nightmare. (laughs) I like how, no matter how many times we do this, we still are less like, what the fuck are we supposed to do whenever we're pimping the shows? (laughs) Oh, God. And get the hell out of here. Office Pulp Guy, and this has been a Pulp Podcast production. Now please, 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 put a gun in my mouth and pull the trigger and say goodnight. And now, on with the show. There are a lot of issues that plague the <laughs> Greetings and salutations, kiddos. It's me, your old goblin in crime, Roderick Kingsley, here with a special message for you, my adoring public. You may have noticed lately in my many, many appearances that I've had a bit of a spring in my pointy-booted step. No, boys and girls, the secret to my success is no wonder drug or mere miracle diet, but an elixir of the spirit. And, like a Halloween-themed Jehovah's Witness, I'm here to spread the good news like a bombardment of pumpkin bombs. 
the good news of graphic novelism. But, Uncle Hobgoblin, you ask? What is a graphic novelism? Don't ignore me, you little shit! But yes, the tenets of graphic novelism are quite simple. A love for the comic book form in all of its forms. A rejection of the complacency that keeps it from reaching further heights. And, most importantly, a refusal to fall into the dark pool of negativity that has strangled the life out of this culture for too long. Since becoming a devout graphic novelist, I've rebuilt my goblin game from the ground up, soaring high above my fears and insecurities, as though they were the skyline of New York City. And all you have to do to walk this path is look deep within yourself and send your credit card number care of Ronnie the OG Hobby at gobmail.com. Or if you want to be a total Norman about it, just listen to the Graphic Novelism Podcast, where Alex Cook, James Lewis, and Mike Na- Na- Napier preach their love for the medium and warn against those that may do it harm. Remember, ladies and gents, if you want to be the hobgoblin of whatever it is that you do, listen to Graphic Novelism. Subscribe to it on iTunes and The Stitcher. Leave a rating and a comment. Give Hobgoblin all of your money. And for God's sake, kill Spider-Man! Another episode. That was just a little taste of graphic novels. <laughs>